The story and conversation in today's episode includes racially sensitive language that, while used in context, may be considered offensive. Michelle Rado here. Hello. Today's episode had me reaching for my dictionary again, actually the search bar in my browser, but I think I mentioned before that my mom used to always say, if you think you know the meaning of a word, look it up. And in my conversation with Sarah Malone, I loved hearing that her dad actually did a similar thing with her in her childhood. So for that reason, I specifically sought out the Merriam-Webster definition of the word that I thought I might know the definition for. The word is agency. And it was the second and third definitions listed that I think were the ones I was most looking for. Agency. The capacity, condition, or state of acting or of exerting power. Also, a person or thing through which power is exerted or an end is achieved. I like that one. A person or thing through which power is exerted. This is a powerful concept, I think, because it suggests there's something we can always tap into, a person or thing through which power is exerted. With that little hint as a precursor to today's conversation, let's just jump right into Sarah Malone's brave, brave story called Doorway Shadow, and our conversation about transformation, choices, and finding our own agency. This is today's Daring to Tell. It wasn't until I summoned the courage to leave that relationship that I began to discover there could be more to life than just day-to-day survival, uh, and that I really deep down inside wanted something more. I was beginning to discover that I could do more, that I could be more, and I could make a difference not only for me, but for other people. I never did see nothing like that. I never did dream. You look great today. I have to say you are like glowing, so I think you're doing something right. Yeah, I just, well, yeah, I finally, as my husband would say, oh my God, you're all cleaned up. You know, pajamas, you know, I've got like, you know, lipstick on, a little blush on the cheek, you know, so yeah. Very nice. Well, I like lipstick for the podcast. That's perfect. I didn't put on lipstick, but I did put on, I don't know, you can't even see in this light. I put on earrings. Earrings on, all right, yeah. I haven't worn jewelry in... I can't tell you how long. I mean, even going out, you can't wear lipstick because you're wearing a mask. Yeah, I know. Like, what's the point? Yeah. So, yeah. So every now and then I, as my husband would say, I get all cleaned up and. Not that I ever thought you didn't look cleaned up before. (laughs) Clear. But you have a a vivaciousness about you today, I guess. So I've been reading over your piece again and again, and this is such a powerful piece. And I have to thank you right off the bat just for sharing this with me. Um, And I guess I'll say Sarah and I met in Nadine Kenny Johnstone's workshop. And so I'll ask you to just introduce yourself a little to me. I don't know if you want to talk about writing or the other work you've done or what brought you to writing or any of those kind of things. 
Well, I am a uh, newbie when it comes to writing, uh, at least this type of writing, writing a memoir. I've spent most of my career in organizational development, leadership, and human resources, and have taught at the university. In the past maybe 12 years or so, I've gotten involved with the YWCA, Evanston North Shore, and as a part of that work and a part of working to fulfill its mission, which is a dual mission of eliminating racism and empowering women, I really found a place where I could reveal a lot of my background and my experiences that I hadn't talked about it, actually hadn't thought about in years, hadn't consciously thought about in years. So um, in sharing my story of being in an abusive relationship with people at the Y and doing some work with them around that, as well as speaking about that experience, I often had people come up to me and they said one or two or both uh, things. They said, you just told my story. People don't know that I have the same experience because I keep it a secret. And then the second question that always seemed to come up is, how did you go from there to here? Like, how did you go from being in this abusive relationship and growing up in a very difficult situation and be able to move towards something else, being able to jump those hurdles? And I could never answer that question. Every time I tried to answer it, it was just a blob of mush that came out of my mouth. And so I went in discovery of the answer to that question. What made it possible? Why me and not others that have experienced it? So in pursuit of that, I discovered that the answer wasn't somewhere out there. You know, I wasn't going to go out there and find it, that the answer was really within me. And and the work that I've done with organizations, I am familiar with the power of reflection and looking at organizations, helping organizations and people in them, as well as individuals, really step back and look at themselves through an appreciative lens. So all of that work kind of led me to taking a stab at writing my memoir. You know, so now I'm starting to consider myself a writer, although I mean, I've written business kinds of things and plans and strategies and that and developed curriculum and all that kind of thing, but never quite as revealing not quite as revealing, not ever as revealing. I was going to say, this is, it is a whole other, you know, and as someone who's done some writing professionally, I feel similarly like, well, yeah, I've written things, but writing (laughs) with the, you know, quotes around it, I do agree, feels like a whole other thing. And so that's, so that's where I am. Yeah. And the organizational leadership and the work part of it, I do find interesting as well, because sometimes we get channeled or funneled or something like into a thing that might be the thing we need all along, but we're looking at it, as you were saying, sort of like externally as opposed to internally. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, what I've discovered and continue to explore is that oftentimes we tend or I tended to look at my life in segments you know, in decades or in by job titles or something like that. And what I've discovered is that it's all really, I want to say it's on a continuum, but really not a continuum. It's really a part of the same mix. It's how it gets expressed. So yeah, so I'm just discovering that I've had over the years, many ways of expressing 
a lot of the same things, but in different ways. And this book just gives me another angle. It gives me another venue to express some things that I've expressed in my work in working with teams and working with leaders and, and working with organizations. Yeah. I like how you also said about when you were asked by the women at the Y, how did you get from here to there? I think sometimes trying to answer some of those big questions, it starts off as like, oh, I should be able to just give a quick answer to this. But it turns out to be a really long and involved thing that I envision as like a tiny thread that you pull and then all of a sudden there's all this unraveling that comes from that one question. So well, I do want to say one other thing. Yeah. And that is, I am a proud grandmother. It's like the joy of my life being a grandmother. Oh. I mean, I love my kids. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but there's something very special about being a grandmother. And oh. we have five grandkids. Wow. Um, Sarah is um, 28, 29. I forgot. And Jordan is 27. And Kendall is 13. And Zeno is nine. And Eunice is eight. Wow. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That is pretty cool. I don't have any kids, but I always wished I could be a grandparent. <laughs> I know yeah, you can't skip best. one without the other. <laughs> but, uh, well, with that, why don't you read this? Okay, so this is, um, this story is, the title is Doorway Shadow. And this, this situation occurred maybe about a year and a half in to my 13-year marriage with this person. And I was really at a, at a state, emotional state of um, just kind of being beside myself. I really didn't know what to do and I didn't have a clue. I couldn't understand what was happening. Although there was a part of me that because of my prior experiences growing up, I, I was pretty thick skinned about it. So I, I was in this very strange place of just being devastated by it, but at the same time, emotionally um, weakened as well as there's a part of me that was tough, that was rugged is kind of how I would describe it. So this is Doorway Shadow. He erupted. I retreated to the bedroom, closed the door and laid on the bed, staring into the darkness, motionless, fearing any sign of life would provoke him. I prayed to be able to just get some sleep I always needed a lot of sleep. Sleeping was my way to escape, to get away. Some people drank, some like Junie did drugs. Me, I just tried to sleep. I laid on the mattress, clinging to the thin roped edge, every muscle tense, ready for something to happen, hoping for nothing to happen. I heard footsteps leisurely shuffling down the hallway the door opened inch by inch. A shadowy image appeared and stood in the doorway. Its slumped form slowly entered the room. The sound of its feet scuffed across the hardwood floor. My skin crawled. Its slouched shoulders moved, slid toward me. I was all too familiar with the silhouette. I tried not to focus on it. Instead, I kept my eyes fixed 
on scoping out an escape path just in case I had to make a run for it. The ghostly image crept over to the bed and stood at the edge where I laid. Its ominous presence loomed over me like a black cloud stirring to unleash its destruction. He breathed heavy. I breathed whispered shallow gasps of air. My heart pounded. Ba-boom. Ba-boom. I clenched the sheets and closed my eyes. Keep breathing, just keep breathing, I told myself. I'll kill you, spewed from his mouth, piercing the tense silence. I'll kill you. It was the way he said it, the vile tone in his voice. There was something different about this night, something very different this time. I opened my eyes and looked up into the barrel of a gun. He said nothing, just stood there with the gun pointed in my face. Numb, I said nothing. Just laid there staring at the gun, wondering which shallow breath would be my last. What's gonna happen to Kim and Kelly? What's he gonna do? Am I going to die? Who's gonna take care of Kim and Kelly? Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. I looked into his face, our eyes locked, mine on a seething glare of rage. I'll kill you, he said again, this time not with heated rage, but drawing out the word kill in an eerily controlled voice. Ba-boom, ba-boom. I wept in my pillow. What's my life worth? How can it be that I'm worth nothing? I had felt close to the end before. There were times when I wasn't sure I would make it. I used to pray that I would live long enough to see Kim and Kelly go to school, grade school. All my life, I felt like time was running out for me, that this life would be short. If I can just live long enough to get Kim and Kelly through high school, I worried as they got older. This night, though, I didn't fear death. I feared a life of hell. I'm tired, I said in a cracked, yielding voice. The only words I thought to say. Ba-boom. 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 I laid still as my mind drifted to the memory of the question my father asked me when I was eight years old. After a little white boy in our neighborhood called me a nigger. I thought about how in that conversation, my father affirmed my dignity and my worth. He helped me see that names people call me and how others see me don't define who I am. He helped me understand that I have the power to choose the kind of person I am, the person I will become, and that it's up to me to decide my character. Seconds, maybe even minutes passed and something inside me began to change. The tension and the pounding in my chest waned. A peace enveloped my spirit as I nestled in the warmth of my father's love, his words, and his belief in me. I was at peace. The gun still pointed in my face. I turned over and to my other side, my back faced him. You do what you gotta do, I'm going to sleep, I said in a resigned voice. 
He stood there for a minute, then turned and shuffled out the room. As if to bring an end to a suspenseful chapter in a book of horrors, he shut the door behind him. I closed my eyes and went to sleep. I got up the next morning, showered, got Kim and Kelly up and dressed, made breakfast, and started another day as if nothing had happened the night before. He and I never said anything more about that incident until a year or so later when he told me he had no intentions of killing me that night. I just wanted to scare you, he smirked. It was just a BB gun. You can't hurt anybody with a BB gun, he said with an aw shucks down home. Good old boy grin on his face. So um, I feel like there's so much to talk about here and questions. And first I'll ask, how, how does it feel to read this? You said you hadn't looked at it in a while. Um, you know, I, I'm learning more about trauma uh, through my work at the YW. All of our services, the ones that support domestic violence and partner abuse victims are all trauma, what they call trauma-informed services. So what that basically means is that you meet the client where they are with always understanding, recognizing, and acknowledging the effect that trauma has had on their lives and how trauma really even though you seem, you know, for me, I seem to have gotten past all of that, trauma is still the, the essence of it, the impact of it will probably always affect how I see the world and the lens through which I not only see the world, but how I respond to things. So getting back to your question, reading that, uh, there were parts of it that, um, were hard to get to get the words out because they kind of invoke not so much a, well it's it's sort of a fear but it's also an anger and at the same time there's almost a numbness to it it's hard to describe I'm not even sure if I can describe the the emotional grind um, that it causes to read some of this work yeah I think that that's that's the thing about writing and also about reading it out loud is you go back to that place you were and, um, and that can be incredibly painful. It also can be rewarding or satisfying isn't exactly the right word, but maybe cathartic, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what about this feels daring to you? Um, what about this feels daring? One of the things that's daring is how I learned to uh, compartmentalize things. Prior to this relationship, I had been married to my high school sweetheart, uh, the father of my children, who was a free spirit, who went to Vietnam and came home a heroin addict. So I was on my own from very early. I got, you know, graduated from high school in June and was pregnant in September. So I, you know, I was a single parent pretty early on. And yeah. 
so the daring part for me was this, I had like this edge, this just get it done. You know, like, okay, that was yesterday. That's done. Next. And it was about surviving. It was purely about surviving for me and my kids. So I did what I had to do to survive. So that to me took a lot of daring. It took a lot of courage. It took a lot of focus and tenacity to live in that situation for 13 years and just every day get up and say, okay, that was yesterday. What do I have to do today to survive? What do I have to do today to ensure the safety of my kids? What do I have to do today? And I lived like that for years. And it wasn't until I summoned the courage to leave that relationship that I began to discover that there could be more to life than just day-to-day survival. Uh, and that I really deep down inside wanted something more. I really, I was beginning to discover that I could do more, that I could be more. Um, and I could make a difference, not only for me, but for other people. I, I began to, to discover my agency, let's put it that way. Mm. And in that process of um, self-discovery and in the process of relying on voices and feedback and the empowerment of other people Mm -hmm. uh, that saw in me something I didn't see in myself, I was able to leverage all of that to create something different. There were moments where it was obvious to me that there was some liberating process happening but there were moments when I wasn't aware of that and other people saw it and nurtured that and affirmed that. That's, I think, a key part of it, because as you were saying that and I'm wondering, like, at what point do you the way you described it about discovering your own agency? Like, how does that happen? But I guess that happens with people around us. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, that was a little bit of what you said or if there's something within you. Did you see that process because I think that living with a situation for so long we get very focused in okay how can I get through today how can I get through the next day and I feel like the elements as I've talked with you about your story and read this there's there's kind of the endurance okay I got through this let's just move on but then there's resilience. And I don't know what you think about those two kinds of things. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because one of the things that I learned many years after this in my work and my research, kind of drawing back on that angle, that part of me, is that although we try to compartmentalize things because that's the way our brain works, it makes it easy for us to kind of get things done. You know, we can mentally set it over here over there or out of the way, that that's not the way the universe works. And so what I've learned is that there's this constant interaction. There's this constant tension interaction, this constant melding together of experiences, of memories, of uh, things that are happening now with things that are happening that happened in the past. And so it's hard to say. I mean, there were some, there were some pivotal moments that I knew I was making this great leap forward, but there were also these very subtle things that were happening in and around me, this interplay of what was happening outside with, and how that was affecting what was happening inside and vice versa. 
but I didn't realize it was really having an effect on me. I didn't realize mm. the degree to which, for instance, a kind word um, someone would say, or you know, someone making a comment, like, like I'm at work. I had the benefit of, of working when I was in this relationship. So that afforded me some external uh, references of how the world operated other than yeah. what was happening in my house. Right. Um, and so at work, I kept getting all this very positive feedback, you know, like, God, you're really good at this. Or, you know, we're going to promote you because you do this. Or here we have this project. We think you might be able to figure out, you know, go off and figure that out. I didn't know I could do those things. I didn't, I had no idea, uh, but other people saw it. And so one of the things that's really important to me about writing this book uh, and getting my story out there is to demonstrate just how important these small acts of kindness, these small affirmations that seemingly would be in, are nothing. I mean, they're just kind of no big deal, but to someone like me, and there's a lot of people out there like me, these affirmations are like, um, they're like lifelines. You know, it's, it's like you're drowning and all of a sudden somebody throws you something and says, God, you're really good at this, or God, you're, you're smart. You really picked this up fast, or I love that idea you had. And it's like, you did? Like, <laughs> really? I mean, so it was just, yeah. it's just those, you know, I would go to work and get all this feedback and all this, you know, people believed in me, right? Mm-hmm. And this was back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, I'm a black woman. Um, I had kids. And back then, you know, you didn't get promoted if you had kids. You couldn't hardly get a job if you had kids. Yeah. It's a lie about being pregnant, lie about, you know. Oh, God. Um, it, was, it was a whole different time. And yet yeah. um, I worked at Bell & Howell Company. I, had, I was there for eight years, a little over eight years. I had eight promotions in eight years, non-degreed. And although I had started going back to school part-time. So it was just the, you know, the point was when I went home and all the craziness, and my husband telling me that I was a piece of nothing and worthless. And, and then I go to work and there was this counterpoint of, God, you're really good at this. Or, you know, come do this. Or we're going to send you here. Or, you know, get a plane ticket. We're going to send you to. So, I mean, all of a sudden. So I had these two pieces, these dueling voices, these dueling voices. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So, so I think that. I'm not sure if they answered your question. No, it all did. of those things together just made it possible for me to work my way through it and yeah. to begin to pursue self-actualizing. And a lot of people, a lot of women don't get that opportunity. Right. Well, I was going to say, I mean, I relate very much to being in a sphere where you get, you start getting positive feedback about something and it's incredibly powerful for just someone to just say, oh, you're really good at this. And so of course you just sort of like, it's a magnet that draws you towards that. But yeah. those moments add up. And then obviously you were going through what you were going through at home too. And that when those two things are sort of this tussle back and forth every day, it takes the time t- for those things to add up in your head and yeah. say, yeah. I can do something. Like, how will I do this? What can I do about it? Sarah, one question I have. Is it possible he would hear this ever? 
your writing? Um, I don't think that um, he's much older now. He's my age. I'm 73 and he's maybe a year younger than me or around that age. And I, I just don't think now he, it would be an issue for him. That's one thing. For mm. another thing, I, I've been out there. I mean, I've been, I've done other videos uh, where I've talked about, you know, uh, the great escape. I would, my kids call it running away from home. Uh, where I wound up living at the at back, it was the same YWCA that I'm on the board of in 1983. I think it was 1983. Um, my youngest daughter and I had lived at the, they called it the battered women's shelter mm-hmm. for like six weeks. So there are people, and I've talked about that publicly, very publicly. Right. And people know that I was married to him so they can put two and two together. I see. So I, it is what it is. Well, I will say there's a lot I'm really scared to say about my own experiences. They're not this, but it's, you know, like I've, I'm very mad at my mother. (laughs) This is why I have this idea of daring to tell, because I think it is daring to tell the stuff that happens to us, that we protect the other people in our lives. Yeah. And so I do think it's, and and here I am asking all these people to read things and I'm scared. I admire the bravery to do that because that's what I think when I hear stories that you go, oh no, will they hear you saying something? You know, there's something um, very um, healing about talking about it. Yeah. Um, And there's something um, that helps you tap into a courage that you don't even know that you have. Yeah. You know, we all have it, but it's all mucked up and it's all covered up and it's all, yep. you know, a mess inside all this here. Um, it sure is. But it's there. Yeah. It's there nonetheless. And so talking about it has really, I remember I started this journey formally when I took a class with Nadine. And uh-huh. she was teaching a class at the Story Studio and it was called Memoir in a Year. Oh, okay, yeah. So it started in September and ended in August the following year. And I remember like the second or the third session that we had, it was maybe a group of seven of us. All these people were writers. I didn't even know what that meant to write a memoir. I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of them, they were talking about their shrinks. And they kept saying to me, if you don't have a shrink now, you need to get one because you're going to need it. You start this process, you're going to need somebody to help you like work through some of the stuff that you don't even know is going to come out of you. Wow. And I used to think, these people are nuts. Like, (laughs) really? (laughs) I have Uh, a shrink. I mean, I, you know, so I found I would write some of these stories. This is no joke, Michelle. And I'd start writing. And sometimes the stories are so dominant that it's almost like giving birth. It's like I have to come. I have to get it out of me, right? Yeah. I have to give birth to this thing so I can live normal for it. Yeah, you know? yeah. And, um, and afterwards, or even while I'm writing it, I am bent over the computer in tears. Mm-hmm. I am sobbing or I'm sickened to my stomach. Wow. You know, and finally I just said, I need to figure out what's really happening here. I need some help trying to work through some of this stuff that- yeah. I didn't know existed or I just kind of compartmentalized. I yeah. Set it over there and forgot about it. Yeah. It doesn't go away. 
no it sure doesn't and and you said it exactly right and as i know i said before i don't have kids but it is you have to get this thing out of you it is and there's there's something both physical and emotional about the process of it being in you and then it coming out of you yeah. and going onto the page and i think with reading it's the same thing it's it's come it was in you and it has to come out of you and hopefully you shed another layer of that pain and you you make that big mess a little more organized and yeah I don't know there are certainly days I feel like it's as big a mess as ever but yeah. well, well but, I think that's part of the process too yeah you know it's like um you never you don't forget things you can forgive and you can move on but the effect of the experience is still there. And, and yeah, the, to yeah. me, the, the magic and all of that is learning to be conscious about it. Yeah. So that when it starts to come out in various ways, yeah. it's not a subconscious thing. I can say, yeah. uh-oh, here goes my being pissed off about whatever. And right. it's affecting me in this conversation. Yeah. And then kind of stepping back and saying, you know what? That happened. It's real. And my feelings about it are real, but it doesn't have to taint what I'm doing now. Right. And that's, like I said, I mean, it's easier said than done. No, I know. I'm learning how to do that. Yeah. Well, good God. <laughs> good for you. Good for all of us trying to do that. It's, um, yeah. yeah. So my other question is, I wanted to ask you about your father. Tell me a little bit, because this is he plays a really key role in this yeah yeah uh you know it's interesting um wow I, i'm doing some work in you know ancestry.com right now so i'm trying to figure out a lot about my father and his mother and their family and my father uh, and my mother were both older when they had my sister and i my mother was 43 when she had me and my father was 12 years older so he was a much older man he was um my mother was the the um, rambunctious, busy bee, you know, vitality and just kind of buzzing around all the time. My father was a very quiet, thoughtful, reflective person. He said very little, but when he spoke, everybody in the room kind of stopped to hear what he was going to say. And I, I write a story about this too. The, in fact, I mentioned it in this story, a little boy caught me a nigger. We lived in a you know, in a mixed neighborhood and we, you know, white kids and black kids, we all played together and it was a mixed neighborhood, but still very segregated. And there was one school. So we all went to school together. And this little boy, I thought he liked me and I liked him. He was, you know, like a nice little kid, you know? And so I got a brand new bicycle for my birthday. And I wrote a great story about this. My birthday's in February. I had to wait like months to take it outside because we lived in the Midwest. It was cold. So spring came, I got my bike, I was so excited. And there was a hill. We lived at the bottom of this hill. And so the, what we all liked to do, my friends and I, was, was kind of scoot our bikes up to the top of the hill and we'd pedal down and scream and our, you know, hold our legs, our hands up. And so we, we went up a couple of times and so I wanted to show off my new bike. So the last time we rode down, I went last because I wanted everybody at the bottom to see me coming down on my new bike. So I'm on my way down. I'll never forget this. I mean, it's just, it's vivid like it happened yesterday. I'm pedaling and my, I had these little pigtails, a flat back, 
and I'm pedaling down the hill and you know, I can hear the shh because there are cars kind of parked on the street. And as you pass them, there was this whoosh, whoosh of the cars. I got to like almost halfway down the hill and I saw Johnny standing on the curb and his, it was his face. He was beet red. His eyes were almost buffed. And he looked like, like a devil. His eyes were bugged. His, his brow was furrowed. He had this mean, angry, hateful look. And as I approached him, he yelled, nigger, nigger. And I, I had never heard the word before. I had never heard the word, but I knew it was bad because I could tell by the look on his face. So I get to the bottom of the hill and all my friends, and I was petrified. Got to the bottom of the hill, all my friends said, what happened? What did Johnny say? So I told them what he said, and they all kind of like backed away like, he said, what? He said that to you? But they wouldn't tell me what it was. So I go inside, my father's at home, and you know I'm moping. I'm so hurt because I thought Johnny was my friend. And so he finally comes over and he says, like, what's wrong? And I said, nothing. He said, no, something's wrong. So he said, what happened? I said, Johnny caught me a bad word. I think it's a bad word. And he said, what was this? I said, Johnny called me a nigger. And my father, he was sick. He was uh, had uh, heart failure. Mm. Um, so he, you know, he wheezed a lot and he walked slowly. And he kind of stood, you know, humped a little bit. He wasn't, and he stood up straight and he said, he called you what? I said, Johnny called me a nigger. And he says, well, do you know what that is? I said, no. He said, well, let's go see what the Webster calls, says about it. Mm-hmm. He, loved the, he loved the dictionary, and he called it the Webster. So he gets the Webster, and he reads a bunch of stuff. I don't remember the words, but they were all bad words. And then he says to me, is that you? And I thought, no, those are horrible words. That's not like, you know, my mother always told us to be like Jesus, right? And so that's not what Jesus, I mean, like, no, that's not me. So I said, no, sir, that's not me. And he said, good. And he closed it up and walked away. So it was just, you know, I mean, I keep, I reference that even today, you know, yeah. like when I'm struggling with something, I, I think those words, is that you? Right. Is that you? Who are you? So it's just, you know, I, I, well, from him. I was going to say, what a beautiful lesson. I mean, clearly it sticks with you. I mean, it's a wonderful way to face racism yeah. with your child or you know uh, yeah he was he was an incredible person I even now I mean he, he died when I was 16 I was a junior yeah. in high school and it was a horrible experience for me hmm. he died at home and I found him dead and so oh. it was it was really it was wow dramatic. oh yeah. gosh. so it was um but I miss him I still miss him and yeah, yeah. I miss his lessons I miss his wisdom his well his quiet wisdom. He's here with you in your story. Yeah. So yeah, he that's is. Always we remember the people we yeah, love. He is. Yeah. He's a cool guy. It, it's incredibly powerful. I love hearing your story and you write so well. And it's I'm just so happy to talk with you. Um well, you know, I'm I'm happy to share the story and it's not just about the story. It's about talking about a path forward. It's about discovering a, a way for a woman who's experiencing what I experienced mm-hmm. to, to begin anew. Um, right. You know, I've been reading a lot about resilience and, you know, survive. I get kind of annoyed when people talk about 
you know, domestic violence survivors as if, and, and that's not to say that that's not a real thing. It is absolutely a real thing. I myself was a survivor, but it can't end there. I think about, you know, if I had stayed a survivor, if I had stayed a victim, I would be a very different person today. Mm-hmm. So my question is, how do we create the context? How do we create the environment where women can move beyond victimhood, move beyond not being victimized, but being a victim? And those, mm-hmm. are two, those are two different things to me. Yeah. Um, being victimized is something that comes in at you. Yeah. Being a victim is something you assume about yourself. Mm. That's internal. Yeah. And so how do we begin to change that internal dialogue and that internal way of seeing ourselves? Mm-hmm. So although we may be experiencing victimization, we can begin to leverage something very deep in us, the courage to pursue um, not being a victim. I'm not sure what the positive. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> but you know what I mean? I mean, like, right. because to me, that's where the magic is. The magic is in seeing ourselves as strong, as viable, as having agency and having the capacity to choose. It's something I learned from my father very early on. I am always choosing. I have a choice. Yeah. And I am responsible for what I choose. So how do we help people, women, see that they have agency? No matter how bad it is, they have a choice. What are the choices? And there may not be any good choice but you're still not a victim because you have choice. And how do you choose something, take responsibility for that choice, learn from whatever happens and continue making choices that help you to grow and be the best you can be. Yeah. And it's, it's a lot easier said than done. I get it. Oh yeah. But that's, that's the work that it's... I, I'd really like to kind of get my arms around. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a hard lesson, but I think that that whole concept of we have our own choice. <laughs> we can choose what we do. And we have to have responsibility for the choices we're making and how can we own up to those and, and make them and do what we can do. Is there anything else you wanted to say? I just encourage everyone I know to give to your local organization that supports women and yes. children because there's a lot of need out there. Yeah. Uh, If everyone tries to help one, then we can hopefully change the situation. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for letting me tell my story. Absolutely. I don't say things like this very often, but Sarah is my hero. I just so loved connecting with her through this story and our conversation. If you or someone you know is living in an abusive relationship, the YWCA and YWCA.org is one resource to go to for help. Sarah also wanted to point out the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, who she's a member with, and who is also doing incredibly comprehensive work in the domestic violence and violence against women space. You can find them online at thehotline.org, or you can call 1-800-799-SAFE, 1-800-799-SAFE. I was mentioning agency at the beginning of this episode, and there's another definition 
there's a literary agent. And so I will put a shout out that Sarah is indeed shopping for a literary agent at the moment. Her voice would be such a great discovery for the right agent. So I will put a link to Sarah's LinkedIn profile in the show notes in case you'd like to check her out. As I begin winding my way towards the end of my debut season of Daring to Tell, I will let you know that Sarah Malone will be back in a season two with another story from her memoir about surviving that abusive relationship. I just can't wait to talk with her again. So much about writing and about telling our stories, reading our stories has to do with overcoming fear. That's also a theme that we will take on in our next episode when I am excited to say we will be speaking with William Kenauer, author of the book called Fearless Writing. One of the things you will learn as you find the courage to say the thing you thought you couldn't say is that the more honestly you can say it, and by honestly, I mean, tell the specifics of your life, but find the universal within it because nothing you're writing about is actually about you in that way. Please subscribe so that these episodes can come into your podcast feed each Thursday. If you have questions for me or any of the writers you've heard, you can email me. I am michelle at michellerado.com. Michelle with two L's, R-E-D-O. Thanks for daring to listen. I hope you will listen in again next time.